Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, this is Alan Cross. Welcome to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, our weekly exploration of the stories and characters that made modern music what it is today. We want to make this podcast one of your favorites. So if you love the show, do me a favor, tell a friend about it or rate it on iTunes if that's your thing. We'd really love it if you'd do that. Or you can just drop me an email with your thoughts to alan at alancross.ca. Maybe you want more information on something you hear, or maybe you have an idea for a topic for a future episode. Whatever. I guarantee your response. alan at alancross.ca. Whether you're listening one at a time or binging on a bunch of podcasts all at once, we're glad to have you here. All right, let's talk music, shall we? People often ask me where I come up with the ideas for this program, and my answer is always the same. You know that feeling when it's Sunday night and you promise yourself you'll start on that assignment that's due the next morning as soon as The Simpsons is over, and then you later amend that to when Family Guy is over? Yeah, well, that's, that's me. Every single week. And after doing more than 700 of these one-hour assignments stretching back to 1993, I finally hit a wall. Total writer's block. And I started to panic. I mean, there are hard deadlines. I have a contract. I'm expected to deliver another new show. There are radio stations all over the place that need new programming from me. What the hell am I going to talk about this time when I got nothing to talk about? I mean, this is the 740... Wait a second. This is show number 747. That's the same as the airliner. What about stories of alt-rock and airplanes? Okay, so I started to go back through all my files, and sure enough... There's tons of stuff on the subject. Plane crashes, near misses, air rage, terrorist bombings. That settled it. Show number 747 will be about civil aviation and alt-rock. So, there. Wasn't so hard, was it? Dodged a bullet for another week. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and I am an airline nerd. I swear that if I wasn't doing this for a living, I'd be a travel agent working for an airline. I love the idea of air travel. You get on a plane, and when you get off, you're somewhere totally different. And I love reading about all aspects of air travel. The planes, the airports, the onboard amenities, all that stuff. And I also fly a lot. I mean, 150,000 miles a year. And while there's plenty to hate about civil aviation, it's not very civil after all, I still get a kick out of getting my boarding pass, settling into my seat, and knowing that in a few hours, I will be someplace new, 
Seriously, if you want to talk about Skytrax ratings, trade seat guru tips, talk about airport shopping or lessons in duty-free, or maybe you need help finding the lounges at even the most far-flung airports, I am your nerd. So for show 747, why not combine flying with alt-rock? So, done. Let's begin with air rage, which is a real problem. Not a week goes by without a story of a passenger becoming unruly because of something. Cramped seats, the person in front reclining too far back, too much to drink, not enough to smoke, drug issues, sexual escapades, and just being a real knob. Let's start with this one. February 13th, 1998, not long after Ian Brown, then estranged from the rest of the Stone Roses, released his first solo album. He boarded a British Airways plane after a quick MTV event in Paris. This was supposed to be a very fast trip home on British Airways Flight 1611 from Charles de Gaulle Airport to Manchester. That's maybe a 90-minute flight. Once airborne, things got pretty weird. What actually happened depends on who you ask. Officially, Ian got into a row with a flight attendant over something, allegedly saying, I'm going to cut your hands off. Then, allegedly, he followed her forward to the cockpit area, where he created even more of a disturbance by banging on the cockpit door while swearing at the flight crew as the plane was descending into Manchester Airport. When the plane did land at Manchester, Ian was arrested and charged with endangering the safety of an aircraft in flight. Despite Ian's testimony that it didn't happen the way the flight attendant and the pilot said, a judge, who just happened to have ties with the airline industry, rejected any and all explanations from Ian or his friends and sent Ian off to jail. He wanted to set an example. The message to the public, he said, must be that anyone who behaves in this way will lose their liberty. At an appeal, Ian pleaded with the judge, saying that if he didn't get out soon, his whole UK tour would have to be cancelled, putting more than a hundred people out of work. The judge didn't care, and the sentence stood. Ian was sentenced to serve his four-month term in Strangeways Prison in Manchester, one of the UK's worst jails, and home to some of Britain's most violent criminals. Fortunately, he was homed unharmed for Christmas of that year, but unfortunately, he'll never be permitted to fly British Airways again. The Stone Roses with singer Ian Brown, Air Rage Felon. And he's not the only such person from Manchester. As far as I know, Liam Gallagher is still banned from Cathay Pacific. The story is that he freaked out over a scone on a flight from Hong Kong to Perth, Australia in March of 1998, and it escalated into a full-blown case of air rage. He lit up a smoke, he swore at the flight crew, and threw stuff around the cabin. The captain had to intervene, threatening to divert the flight and force Liam, the rest of Oasis, and their 30-member entourage off the plane if they kept it up. Today, Liam says that he'd rather walk to Australia than fly Cathay, which I don't think will be much of a problem. April 21, 2001, REM was scheduled to play a concert for Nelson Mandela at Trafalgar Square in London. Guitarist Peter Buck, who is not the biggest fan of flying, popped a sleeping pill a prescription drug called Ambien, and washed it down with a big glass of red wine. Actually, Peter had some wine at the gate, and he was reported to have had 15, that's one five, top-ups while in his seat on the plane. He says he started to feel a little woozy, and then nothing until he woke up in a police cell at Heathrow Airport. He thought he was having a heart attack and couldn't understand why he was in this weird hospital Disneyland. 
the man was confused, but not as confused when he heard the charges against him. Peter's actions on British Airways Flight 48 consisted of the following, and none of this is disputed. Peter attempted to insert a CD into a food trolley, thinking it was actually a very big CD player. When it wouldn't play his CD, he flipped it over, spilling its contents all over the first-class cabin. When he was formally warned and given a card stating that if he didn't behave himself, he would be arrested, he ripped that up in front of the flight attendant. He grabbed a cutlery knife and wouldn't give it back to the flight attendants. He smeared yogurt on himself and all over the cabin, and he attacked various members of the flight crew. He was so belligerent that the flight was almost diverted in the interest of safety. The dude is lucky that this happened to him in the spring of 2001 and not after 9-11. God knows what might have happened to him then. Anyway, Peter was granted bail and ordered to return to London to appear in court on various charges of being drunk on a plane. There were also two charges of common assault and one of damaging British Airways property. His first trial collapsed under strange circumstances, but at the second trial, which lasted three weeks and featured people like Bono of U2 testifying as character witnesses, Peter was acquitted, mainly because the jury believed the doctor's testimony of what happened. The combination of Ambien and red wine resulted in something known as non-insane automatism. This is a legal term that describes certain types of non-voluntary behavior. In Peter's case, it was caused by an unusual reaction between the Ambien tablet and the alcohol. In other words, Peter was excused for his actions because of this weird combination of prescription drugs and booze. The case was dismissed on April 5th, 2002. And here's the best part. Peter flew home to Seattle on British Airways. Peter Buck, another guy who's probably not keen on flying British Airways and vice versa. Here are a few more examples of rock star air rage. February 3rd, 2003. Courtney Love was arrested at Heathrow after being accused of abusing the cabin crew on Virgin Atlantic Flight 8 from L.A. to London. The problem stemmed, allegedly, from the crew refusing to allow her nurse into where she was sitting in the first-class section. The captain radioed ahead and had police waiting for her on the tarmac. September 1, 2011, Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day was apparently teased or chastised about his pants by a member of a Southwest Airlines crew as he was trying to fly out of San Francisco to Burbank. He's said to have replied, don't you have better things to do than worry about my baggy pants? But the flight attendant kept after him. Pull your pants up or you're getting off the plane. He didn't, and he was thrown off. The airline soon apologized and put him on the next flight. And November 10th, 2014, Dolores O'Riordan of the Cranberries was arrested after a scene aboard an Aer Lingus flight, Flight 110 from New York to Shannon. Around 4.45 a.m., about 20 minutes before landing, there was a disturbance in business class. Lots of shouting. And one of the flight attendants was injured. Something about stepping on a foot very forcefully. The captain radioed ahead for help and the police were waiting for Dolores. She did not go quietly. I quote, you can't arrest me. I'm an icon. I'm the queen of Limerick. You don't know who you're dealing with. I pay my taxes, so I pay your wages, and I am going to sue. Dolores, who is quite petite, was described as being quite irrational, quite aggressive, quite difficult. When she was put in the back of a patrol car, she was banging and kicking all over the place, maybe trying to break out the windows. 
Then she escaped and a cop had to chase after her. And once he caught up and grabbed her, she gave him a hard headbutt. She was taken to jail where she started singing and shouting from her cell. A doctor was called in and she was transferred to St. Patrick's Psychiatric Hospital. She was diagnosed as being genuinely mentally ill, paranoid and delusional. She stayed there for three weeks. When the double assault trial finally went to court in December of 2015, she pleaded guilty to the charges of air rage. She doesn't remember a thing about what happened, but she did not deny that she was involved in all this. Dolores has since been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and the stress and sleep deprivation she'd been under triggered an episode. She'd just separated from her husband of 21 years, and she'd been flying back to commemorate the second anniversary of her father's death. And she'd been away from her kids, living out of a suitcase for a couple of weeks. It's called hypomania, and it can be a very, very frightening thing. By the way, Dolores was fined 6,600 Canadian dollars on February 24th, 2016. The judge said it would be unfair to be more harsh than that or to give her a criminal conviction given the fact that she was mentally ill. For a while, there seemed to be some kind of contest for the highest gig in the world. And in this case, the definition of high is altitude. If we're talking about altitude with your feet still on the ground, the record goes to a guy named Oz Belden, the founder of an organization called Music for Children. He performed a 40-minute show for a group of hikers on the summit of Mount Mira in the Himalayas, and this took place at an altitude of 21,825 feet. But if we're talking about sheer height, the winner is Jamiroquai, at least at first. On February 27, 2007, he and his band boarded a private 757 chartered by Sony Ericsson, the mobile phone company. The whole thing was a stunt to promote Jamiroquai's greatest hits album called High Times. Yeah, you get it? The event, called Gig in the Sky, also featured 200 contest winners. The cabin was specially outfitted with appropriate lighting, a stage of sorts, and space for the band. It took off from Munich at 4 p.m. on its way to Athens. When the plane reached 35,000 feet, Jamiroquai and the band played five songs. A representative from the Guinness Book of World Records was on hand, and he certified that six records were broken. That included highest concert at 35,000 feet, fastest concert, a ground speed of nearly 600 miles an hour, and the highest and fastest recording in history. It sounded like this. Good afternoon, people. How the devil are you all? All right? Jamiroquai with Feels Just Like It Should, one of the songs he performed at 35,000 feet on February 27, 2007, earning a Guinness Book of World Records spot for highest gig ever. Unfortunately for him, that record has been broken. On September 8, 2009, the Black Eyed Peas got aboard a Virgin Blue 737 in Melbourne, Australia, and flew to an altitude of 41,000 feet on their way to Perth. They played during the flight, giving them the record. But then there was James Blunt. He played a gig on June 28, 2010, on a Boeing 767 that took off from Stansted Airport in England to a height of 42,080 feet. That's about two miles higher than Jamiroquai. 
And then there was Tony Hadley of Spando Ballet and Kim Wilde, who performed a charity gig on a British Airways 767 at a height of 43,000 feet. And that was March 10th, 2013. And that is about as high as you can get, because that's pretty much the operational ceiling of any passenger jet in use right now. Any higher, and you'd have to do something aboard a specialized military aircraft. And, uh, well, that ain't going to happen anytime soon. Now, let's talk about pilots. There are plenty of rock stars who invested some of their earnings in their love of flying. Gary Newman, the new wave star turned electronic icon to guys like Beck and Dave Grohl, became very accomplished as a pilot, even working as a stunt pilot in air shows. He doesn't do that anymore since four of the six people on his flying team, plus his instructor, were killed in accidents. But in 1981, he did fly around the world in his own aircraft. Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden is a certified airline pilot. He's flown for a number of airlines. He learned how to fly in Florida in the 90s and then ended up in the left-hand seat for a now out-of-business airline called Astraeus, for which he flew 757s. He's now qualified to fly 737s and a 747-400, which is one huge aircraft. In fact, when Iron Maiden tours the world, they charter their own planes. Bruce flies it. He owns his own charter airline, an aviation company out of Cardiff, Wales. And just for fun, he flies a Fokker triplane, which specializes in reenactments of famous battles of World War I. He goes and does this at air shows. Then there's Dexter Holland of The Offspring. He first got his pilot's license in 1996. He's now a licensed air transport pilot and flight instructor. In November 2004, he flew his own twin-engine Cessna Citation around the world. 25,000 miles in 10 days, totally solo. He says he ate nothing but Doritos and beef jerky the entire time. He did, however, have trouble paying for that plane and two others, which were repossessed. In 2014, he was sued by Cessna for missing payments on his jet after falling nearly $1 million in arrears. Things were eventually restructured into 71 monthly payments of about $10,000 each, with one final payment of somewhere around $500,000. Then, in early 2016, The Offspring sold a chunk of their publishing catalog for $50 million, which should clear up the plane problems. Let's move on to a story about you, too. Now, as a member of the band, and as someone who is always flitting about the planet on some humanitarian mission or another, Bono flies a lot. When U2 tours, they charter a plane for band and crew. In fact, anytime when Bono has to go from point A to point B, he always flies private. Usually that's pretty good. But on at least two occasions, it was not. On January 16, 1996, Bono and his family and some friends, including Jimmy Buffett and Island Records head Chris Blackwell, visited Blackwell State in Jamaica. They were aboard Hemisphere Dancer, a Grumman HU-16 seaplane that was owned by Buffett. Buffett was at the controls, he's also a pilot, and the plane was taxiing on the tarmac at the Negril Airport. Jamaican cops suddenly got it in their head that this was actually a drug runner's plane, and they opened fire on it like with guns. Here's Bono in the Belfast Telegraph. Those boys were shooting all over the place. I felt as if we were in the middle of a James Bond movie, only this was real. It was absolutely terrifying, and I honestly thought we were all going to die. 
Thank God we were safe and sound. My only concern was for their safety. He's talking about his family. It was very scary. Let me tell you, you can't believe the relief I felt when I saw the kids were okay. And that was it for the Jamaican holiday. Bono and his family decided they'd spend the rest of their time off in Miami. Meanwhile, the Jamaican government offered a full apology. And Jimmy Buffett went on to write a song about the incident called Jamaica Mistaka. And the chorus goes, come back, come back, back to Jamaica. Don't you know we made a big mistake? We'd be so sad if you told us goodbye. And we promise not to shoot you out of the sky. The second Bono aircraft incident occurred on the way to Berlin's Schoenfeld Airport. It was Thursday, November 13th, 2014. It was a two-hour flight from Dublin aboard a private Learjet 60. As the plane approached the German coast, the rear cargo hatch of the plane became detached. No one inside knew what was going on, but they did hear a big thud. At 12.15 a.m., 11 minutes before touchdown, the door blew off entirely. When the plane landed, everybody was stunned to find that two suitcases were missing because, uh, well, the door was gone. Last I heard, they found the door, at least a piece of it, in the Brandenburg area. Now, after those stories, would you want to get on a plane with Bono? No, me neither. You two and Bono, who is either a very lucky or unlucky flyer. This program is all about the intersection of airplanes and alt-rock. And as you can see, there's been plenty to talk about. Oh, here's a good one. OK Go teamed with a Russian airline called S7 to create the first ever zero-G music video for a song called Upside Down and Inside Out. The plane flew a series of extreme parabolic trajectories, which produced momentary periods of zero gravity. It's pretty cool. Look it up online. And before you point out that Commander Chris Hadfield did a zero-G video aboard the International Space Station in 2013, you are right. However, we will give OK Go points for their video because they had to remain within the atmosphere. Now let's talk about plane crashes. We got close with Bono a few minutes ago, and now we're going to talk about the real thing. Ed Robertson of the Bare Naked Ladies got his pilot's license in 2005. You might remember a TV show called Ed's Up, in which he worked at getting a license to fly a float plane. On the afternoon of August 24, 2008, Ed took off in a Cessna 206, one of these amphibious planes, from Baptiste Lake near Bancroft, Ontario. At around 12.30, the plane lost speed, which is bad, and it crashed into a grove of trees about 300 meters from shore. Ed and his three passengers were all able to walk away. The Transportation Safety Board launched an investigation but couldn't find a concrete cause. Not pilot error, not mechanical malfunction, not weather. About the only thing that they could come up with was some kind of air current anomaly that led to a loss of lift, loss of airspeed, loss of altitude, and boom. Ed was commended for his cooperation in the investigation, and as far as I know, he still flies whenever he can. I'm so sane, it's driving me crazy. The Very Naked Ladies with Ed Robertson, a pilot who walked away when his plane crashed into an Ontario forest in 2008. 
One of the worst incidents of airline terrorism was the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland on December 21, 1988. A bomb had been secreted inside a cassette player that was packed in the forward luggage compartment of a 747 that was on its way from London to New York. The bomb originated from a Libyan agent. When it went off, the plane was flying at 31,000 feet over Scotland at around 500 miles an hour. It disintegrated. 243 passengers, 16 crew members, and 11 people on the ground were all killed. What's not widely known are the people who didn't die because they weren't on the plane when they should have been. Actress Kim Cattrall decided to change her flight to do some last-minute shopping in London. Mats Wielander, who was then the number one ranked tennis player in the world, was supposed to fly to New York on Pan Am 103, but for some reason did not board. The Four Tops, the R&B group, had seats, but they overslept after performing on BBC's Top of the Pops the night before. They just missed the flight. And so did Johnny Lydon, he of the Sex Pistols and Public Image Limited. Nora, his wife, took too long to pack. They had a big fight, which delayed them even more, and then they got stuck in traffic on the way to Heathrow. They missed their flight by minutes. This gives us an excuse to play Public Image Limited's Death Disco, doesn't it? Johnny Lydon with Public Image Limited and Death Disco. He came very, very close to dying in the Lockerbie bombing in December of 1988. There have been plenty of instances of musicians dying in horrible plane crashes. February 3rd, 1957 has gone down in history as the day the music died. Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and Big Bopper were all killed when their small plane went down in a cornfield outside of Mason City, Iowa. March 5th, 1963, country singer Patsy Cline was a passenger in a small Piper aircraft that went down in bad weather in a forest near Camden, Tennessee. Otis Redding died on December 10, 1967, when his small plane crashed into Lake Monoma near Madison, Wisconsin. October 20, 1977, a Convair twin-engine prop ran out of fuel near Gillsburg, Mississippi and went down in a swamp. Three members of Leonard Skinner were killed in the crash. March 19, 1982, Randy Rhodes, Ozzy Osbourne's guitarist, died when the beach bonanza he was in crashed into a house after the pilot clipped a wing buzzing Ozzy's tour bus. R&B singer Alea died when her Cessna crashed on takeoff when leaving the Bahamas after a video shoot. Jim Croce, John Denver, Ricky Nelson, Stevie Ray Vaughan, they all died in various aircraft accidents. One guy who really should have died in a plane crash but did not is Blink-182 drummer Travis Barker. He's okay, but he will always have physical and mental scars. On September 19, 2008, Travis performed with one of his Blink side projects in Columbia, South Carolina. Just before midnight, he boarded a Learjet 60 for a flight to Van Nuys, California. His wife was supposed to come with him, but she said she had a freaky feeling and didn't want to go, so she stayed behind. Something went very wrong on takeoff. Even though the weather was fine, the plane failed to lift off by the time it reached the end of the runway. It hit some runway lights, crashed through a fence, crossed a highway, and ended up against an embankment. Four of the six people on the plane, including the two pilots, died. Travis and his buddy DJ AM survived, but with very severe burns. So what happened? Well, the tires of the jet were badly underinflated, which caused them to burst as the plane gathered speed. 
The pilot then aborted the takeoff at too high a speed, meaning that the jet couldn't be controlled. It was touch and go for Travis for a very long time. He was in and out of hospitals and burn units for nearly three months. He needed surgery 16 times, and at one point, it looked like his foot would have to be amputated. And then there was the PTSD, which, as you might guess, was pretty severe. DJ AM also had second and third degree burns, although he was released from hospital weeks before Travis. But less than a year later, he was found dead in his apartment in New York. A drug overdose. Crack, cocaine, oxy, and a ton of other stuff. There were plenty of lawsuits, including a suit filed by Travis against the owners of the plane, a suit filed against Goodyear, the people who made the tires, and the aircraft maintenance company who didn't inflate the tires properly. Everything, though, has since been settled. If you want to read a first-person account of the whole ordeal, pick up Travis's book, Can I Say, Living Large, Cheating Death, and Drums, Drums, Drums. About the only good thing about the whole incident, other than the fact that Travis lived, was that it spurred the reunion of Blink-182. Almost three years to the day after the crash, Blink released an album called Neighborhoods. Here's a single from that record. Up All Night from Blink-182, featuring plane crash survivor Travis Barker. I'm always at your service when it comes to this program. Should you have any questions or comments or critiques, send them along to alan at alancross.ca. Trust me when I say that I read every email and answer all of them. I know that people like to send messages through Facebook, but uh, you know what? Don't do that. You will get faster service through old-fashioned email. But please visit me on Facebook just the same, and Twitter, and Instagram, and Google+. And then we have the website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It is updated every single day with music news, opinion, music recommendations, stories of music and tech and whatever else I think you'll find cool. Get the newsletter too, because all that stuff will be delivered right into your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern on weekdays. And again, that address is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Technical production is by Rob Johnston with assistance from Natalie Goldfarb. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.